Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Changed. Good day wherever you are listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, July 27th, 2007. This week, episode 47 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Cliff. And cyber jockey, CJ, Zach Slotnick. Of course, Joe. Hey, don't break anything today, now, Zach. Uh, okay. Oh, wait a, wait a minute. I was, I was actually trying to start. There he is. Oh, do you want me to shut that off for you? Shut that down. Would you, CJ? Thank you. All right. Uh, next, today's segments include the microband trivia quiz. We've got a tremendous guest today, Rebecca Flora, from the exec- she's the executive director of the Green Building Alliance. We've got Mr. Glenn Fellman with the IE Connections What's News segment. And we have two sound-offs today, one from Radio Joe, one from the Z-Man. First, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And to contact the show, you need to go to the www.talkshoe.com website, follow the directions, get your PIN number. Our show ID is 1547. We also appreciate suggestions. We'll answer questions, take requests. If you email us at joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com, or Cliff Zlotnick, C-Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at cs.com. Or you can go to our website, www.iaqradio.com, go to the forum section, and post your questions there. Last but not least, Please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Cliff, for the microband trivia question. Thank you. 
an unlikely green building pioneer. The microband trivia question for Friday, July 27, 2007. What unlikely green building pioneer said this shortly before he died? I put my money on the sun and solar energy. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Sounds like another interesting trivia quiz for this week. Today's first guest is Rebecca Flora. Rebecca is the executive director of the Green Building Alliance, a nonprofit organization that drives market demand for green building through education and project facilitation. She was responsible for the GBA's initial organizational strategic plan and office startup in 1997 and is currently managing the startup of GBA's Green Building Products Initiative. Under her leadership, GBA received a 2001 Three Rivers Environmental Award in Public Awareness category. Also noteworthy is her role as the LEED lead AP for Pittsburgh's $350 million LEED Gold Certified Convention Center project, the first green convention center in the world. Previously, she has served in numerous other very important positions, including the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Pittsburgh. Ms. Flora holds a Master's in Urban and Regional Planning from Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Environmental Science from Plattsburgh State University of New York. She is the Chair-Elect for the U.S. Green Building Council, a member of the USGBC's Lead Neighborhood Development Core Committee, an advisory member or advisory board member for the University of Pittsburgh's Mascaro Sustainability Initiative, and serves as a board member for both Phipps Conservatory and Botanical Gardens and the Pittsburgh Partnership for Neighborhood Development. Ms. Flora also serves as an adjunct faculty member at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz School of Public Policy and Management where she teaches graduate studies in sustainable community development. She was named an environmental hero for 2004 by Interiors and Sources magazine and is one of the top 50 cultural forces in Pittsburgh by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Rebecca's passion for her work in green building is driven by her desire to leave the world a better place for her two daughters and for future generations. Welcome, Rebecca. Oh, we got some music for you. Yeah. Having to spend each day the color of me. If green is all there is to be, it could make you wonder why. But why wonder? Why wonder? I am green. It'll be fine. It's beautiful. And I think it's what I want to be. Okay, that's welcome, great, Rebecca. Joe. Where'd you find that? <laughs> well, that's actually the Z-Man's job here. I don't know. Where did you find that, Cliff? On the Internet. On the Internet. Yeah, there were a lot of different versions of that song, actually, and uh, I kind of like that one the best. My new theme song. Thanks. Uh, all right. <laughs> well, welcome to IAQ Radio, and thanks for joining us. We uh, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. 
And we'd like to start with some questions about the GBA. Um, and I, well, I got to be careful here, Rebecca. We have this thing called the acronym police. Uh, every <laughs> once in a while, there may be a siren that comes and uh, gives me a ticket. So I have to stop and call it the Green Building Alliance. And from now on, I can call it the GBA. What year was this uh, association started or alliance? Well, we're, we're proud to say that we were actually one of the first of our kind in the country. We actually were founded back in 1993 by a coalition of really interested professionals working in the building industry and uh, some other nonprofit organizations. And so we uh, first became staffed in 97 with the generous support of the Heinz Endowments, and uh, we've been having a lot of success ever since. And are you the headquarters? Is the headquarters here in Pittsburgh? Yes, we are headquartered here. Our offices are here in, in Pittsburgh, but we do provide services uh, throughout the western Pennsylvania region, and we're working very actively to reach out into the northwest PA area and also in the Laurel Highlands area right now with um, some uh, folks that we have working with us, uh, steering committees in those areas. I'm just curious, are there any other... Um Any in other cities similar to this that you're aware of? There are, actually. Since we were first formed, and really just in the last three to five years, there have been several cities and regions around the country that have um, started to create these regionally-based green building organizations that are advancing this whole mission. Uh, a lot of that's been driven by the U.S. Green Building Council, which is a national organization that has created a, a chapter program. So there's U.S. Green Building Council chapters, really 75 in total right now, popping up all over the country. Uh, we're just really proud to be one of the first in the country, and we, we, even though we predated the chapter network of the U.S. Green Building Council, we do have a strong, close affiliation with the, with the U.S. Green Building Council and kind of are considered the uh, grandmothers of that system <laughs> point. Okay, and what was your mission? What is your mission uh, for, for the GBA? Our, our mission, to put it simply, simply is to really just uh, transform the building industry, uh, to really bring with that um, more attention to creating better performing, healthier uh, buildings and development. And, uh, you know, through that, we think there's a lot of economic opportunity for the region and for the Commonwealth. Uh, but we really want to just think uh, a little bit more carefully about um, creating healthier space, better performing spaces, and really think about that impact on future generations. Um, but in essence, it's about transforming the building industry, to really moving it in, in new directions, which we see happening around the country and around the world right now. Could you please tell us something about a high-profile LEED certified building in the Pittsburgh area? Well, probably the most high-profile one would be our convention center that you mentioned in my introduction. Uh, it's a 1.5 million square foot building. Um, it was actually my first green building project, not, nothing like starting out on a small one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but it, it, has, uh, it has resulted really in international uh, recognition for Pittsburgh and for our region in terms of what we accomplished through that project. Uh, it is the world's first uh, Green Convention Center, and uh, I think it's had a lot of impact um, not only in um, raising public awareness around the values of green building, but just brought a lot to our region in terms of um, really being thought of as a, as a very progressive area that's thinking about these types of issues. And so I think it's had a huge impact on our image also, which has been fantastic. You know, what design engineering characteristics or building materials make 
our convention center in Pittsburgh the world's first green convention center? It's a really good question, and we have um, there's there's three areas that I really like to focus on that I think um, are are probably the most uh, significant related to the convention center. The first is that we have a water reclamation system uh, that operates in the convention center, and our and our latest data shows us that we're reducing potable water use in the convention center, and that's chemically treated municipal water by as much as 65%. All water that goes down all drains in the convention center, with the exception of the kitchen drains uh, because of the grease content, goes through this filtration system and basically comes out extremely clean on the other side and is used for toilet flushing in the convention center. Um, and so that, that was really a, it wasn't really experimental or anything. It's being done in other parts around the country, but it was, it was the first of its kind in that type of facility. So that's, that was a real accomplishment. Secondly, which may get into the areas that your audiences may be more interested in on this show, is that we have a, a natural ventilation system in the convention center in that a good portion of the time we can open louvers on either end of the convention center, the low end of the convention center, which is on the river side, uh, and basically allow for natural air flows, really outdoor air, uh, to come into the convention center and basically use that as part of our filtration ventilation system, rather than always be running you know, high level uh, filtration ventilation, we're able to do that and allow for the natural chimney effect, essentially, um, to help ventilate the building, particularly when it's not being fully occupied and it's just during setup and, and um, shutdown of, of shows and, the, and whatnot in the, in the center. The other big area is the natural daylighting of our exhibit hall. That's really the first of its kind in the country. While that's being done in other places, uh, particularly in Germany and other places around the world, this was the first convention center in the U.S. to incorporate natural daylighting into our exhibit hall. Um, that particular feature, along with the natural ventilation and overall optimization of the systems, the energy systems in the building, uh, have shown that we are reducing energy use in this building by 35% over a conventional building of a similar size, which is pretty exciting. Yes, it is. And I'm could you quickly review the levels of certification and then tell us what level the convention center, what category or level that falls in? Yeah, you mentioned the word certification. The, the, the measure that we have for determining what is a green building today is one that's being adopted around the country. It was developed by the U.S. Green Building Council, and it's called the LEED certification system. It's a building rating system. Uh, that acronym so <laughs> almost got you there. <laughs> it's a leadership in energy and environmental design uh, building rating system. And that system does have a quantifiable measure, has a way of quantifying each and every element of what would make up a green building. And basically through that point system, which is primarily um, optional and you can basically pick and choose from a menu, depending on how many points you garner in that system through their application process, you have the ability to achieve either a certified silver, gold, or platinum level of certification. Our convention center is a gold certification, which is extremely high considering the type of building that it is um, and uh, the complexities of that building. Uh, but, but those are the different levels, and they really depend on the number of points that you're able to uh, have accepted uh, ultimately during the review of your application at the end of construction. Approximately how old is the convention center in Pittsburgh? 
Yeah, the convention center, unbelievably, Time Flies Fast, opened in the fall of 2003. So we're coming up on our fifth year uh, since the grand opening of the convention center. And what, what's really, I think, something we should all be proud of um, about this is that when we started design of the convention center in 1998, uh, this lead standard that we utilized wasn't even really fully launched into the market yet. But even at that early stage, we set as a goal that this would be a gold-certified building. We didn't want to finish construction you know, four or five years later and find out that we were already behind the eight ball. And we set a high goal, we kept it, we maintained it, and now we continue five years later to be a leading model in the country and, and still the, the benchmark that everyone's trying to meet in terms of new convention centers around the country. So there are others currently in the process or... There are. We've had people come from as far as Australia to tour our convention center and to really uh, learn from it and uh, use that as the, as the new bar for what convention centers should be. Uh, I've talked to people from Chicago, Atlanta, Buffalo, um, Portland, uh, Vancouver. I get calls from people all over the place uh, as they're in the design stage of their convention centers. Uh, trying to learn from ours. Um, I'm not aware of any other that's been certified at this point in time because these do take a long time to design and build other than the Portland Convention Center, which did recently get uh, another type of certification, which is a certification for buildings that have already been built called LEED for Existing Buildings. Yeah, it would seem that um, our climate in the Pittsburgh area would, would pose some challenges because it's cold in the winter and it gets really hot and muggy at the end of the summer. And, you know, we go through a lot of climactic changes. So it would seem that the challenges to get a gold building here might be greater than they might be in an area where you just had a nice temperate climate all year round. Yeah, I think climate is absolutely a factor, you know, but, but really every, every uh, you know, bioregion, every region in the country has its own issues, you know, I think. But... Um, that really points to the importance of doing some of the some of the things that we did do with this building, which I highly recommend for you know any any building that has any degree of complexity or scale to it, and that is energy modeling. We were able to use computerized energy modeling on this building, so we could really uh, test out different approaches and systems before we invested in in actually fully designing and building them, which is, is a great tool that's out there that I don't see being used enough in the building and design industry. Another uh, aspect of that computerized modeling was something that we call uh, computational fluid dynamics, which uh, CFD for short, which really allows us through computer models to look at the air flows through a building. And so we were able to really simulate that even prior to um, during the design phase so that we could make sure we fully optimized every aspect of, of the building in that regard. We also used daylight modeling uh, to really look at the impacts of daylight, you know, uh, in various areas. We didn't want glare or hot spots or too much heat gain. Uh, so those are all tools we have available to us in the industry that we don't see being used quite enough. And I think with those tools, we're able to really take into account whether it be climate, climate issues or variety of occupancy type issues, um, which really help us to make sure we get the best performing building, not only from a bottom line uh, standpoint of ensuring 
uh, operational costs, you know, are kept as low as possible, but then obviously the human health issues of making sure we've got healthy indoor air quality. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. <laughs> it's uh, CJ's on the button. He he didn't get you with the acronym and the acronym police, so he had to come in with something. But I was else. being fair about it, though. <laughs> she defined it. She did very well. Thank you. I am curious about other programs. We've talked a little bit about lead for new construction. You mentioned lead for existing yeah. buildings. Are there other programs as well you could talk to us about? Yeah, and, and let me qualify that lead for new construction. Um, that is the, the standard we've been using most readily in the market to date, but I, I really want to reinforce the fact that that also includes major renovation of buildings. Uh, I, I think sometimes people aren't aware of the fact that you can do, you can apply lead and green building practices to a lot of our um, you know, major renovation projects that are going on in our region. We have a lot of existing building stock, and we want to make sure people understand that it's really applicable to almost any situation. So there is a lead, what we call NC, lead for new construction and major renovation. We have lead for existing buildings, which really relates to operations and maintenance of buildings. Um, we also have on the market now two other forms of lead that are targeted toward the developer community, and that's called lead for core and shell, which is just that related to the core and shell of a building, and then also lead for commercial interiors, which is related to the tenant fit-out of a building. Uh, and and I, those, those products have been out on the market for a couple of years now, and we've seen a lot of interest in those two areas. New to the market, which is really in the pilot phase right now, is lead for homes, obviously targeted towards the builder community and the home uh, owner community, which is really new, very much new for the market, because to date we've been very much focused on the commercial building industry. And then there's also something in pilot called lead for neighborhood development, which is very much targeted towards the site planning, master plan, sort of the land development side of how we think about um, you know, overall um, development plans and whatnot. And so those new products, I think, are going to have a huge interest in the market. We're testing them right now to make sure we get all the kinks out through some pilot projects, and those will probably fully launch into the market in the very new future. You know, other than the energy savings, which are significant, are there any other incentives available either, you know, from the federal government or from state or local governments for people that participate in this program? I wish I could say that there were. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, there's, there's not as many as we would like to see out there. I mean, this is really about good develop. You know, how do we improve development practices? I wish there were more incentives for people that are trying to do the right thing, that are trying to undertake better development, better design and construction to, you know, create incentives for those people. Um, and we have two pieces of legislation that we're trying to move through the state uh, legislature right now. One is related to um, tax credits, which is specifically targeted towards the private sector building industry, uh, and that would have a uh, that wouldn't be there forever, but it would be something that we would hope create a catalyst for the private sector uh, to really go through those early learning curves that you have to go through anytime you try something new or different. Um, that's very early stages of going through that legislative process. The other uh, piece of legislation we're working on statewide with our partners around the state is something related to um, basically requiring all public buildings and public funded buildings of a certain size be, lead, be, uh, be 
be green buildings at this point in time utilizing the LEED standard, but as other standards come um, on the market, we, you know, we would be open to those other standards being utilized also. Um, those are two pieces of legislation that I think could have a huge help in terms of just moving the market in this direction and going through this transformation. Um, there are other various incentives. They're, they're sort of smaller scale. I know the governor's new energy independence um, proposal that he put forth would provide some benefits in that if it's passed this fall uh, toward people and companies that are trying to, to do these types of things. I don't have a lot of other specifics on other programs that are out there. I know there are a few others um, that um, are available and out there, but, but nothing major, nothing that's had a huge wide, widespread impact on the, on the market. You know, knowing how creative entrepreneurs can be, I'm wondering whether in the Pittsburgh market area you're running into builders, buildings trying to pass themselves off as being a green building when in reality they're really not. That's what we call greenwash here in our in our world, um, <laughs> it, it, and we do see it happen. Um, less so now than it was in the early stages. Um, I think the market's becoming much more savvy much more knowledgeable about, you know, the right questions to ask, what's green, what's not. Uh, we do have this LEED certification standard, which I, I strongly endorse. You know, I think it's a great way of sorting out what's real and what's not. Um, by the same token, there are smaller projects that, you know, I think um, are very green projects. There are projects that were very early stages that I think are doing great things. And, and it really does take, you know, just, I think, educating the consumer, uh, making the consumer much more aware of what they're looking for, what they're asking for, uh, getting some real results, you know, if you're buying a home, you know, well, what is the expected energy usage in that home if you're operating a commercial building, you know, really tracking that kind of data and comparing it to, to other buildings and whatnot. Um, but but there is there's still greenwash. You know I I think the market's taking care of that, and I and I think as the market becomes much more aware of things, um, competition will essentially drive and and deal with those issues ultimately. Rebecca, what the Leads for Homes program will that also have different levels? Yes, it will. The Leads for Homes program um, is is uh, like I said in pilot right now. The structure is exactly the same as all the other lead. Um, programs out there um, in that there's five key categories that are utilized um, in basically measuring uh, the greenness of a building. And so Lead for Homes actually follows all of those existing five categories, which include um, site, water, indoor air quality, materials, and energy. Um, but it actually adds to it one other category we call location and linkage, which deals with a lot of the issues around suburban sprawl and growth and whatnot. Um, but similar categories, similar point system. There are more points in the Lead for Home system right now, a total of 108. Uh, that may change as it comes out of pilot. And then they do still have the four levels of certification, certified silver, gold, and platinum. And I'm curious, is, was the Energy Star program incorporated into this somehow, or is that just a totally separate issue, the EPA's Energy, I, I guess it's EPA's Energy Star program? It is, absolutely. The thing that I, I really like about LEED is, is whenever possible, it does refer to existing standards that are out there rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. So Energy Star, in fact, is referenced 
under the energy and atmosphere uh, category of lead for homes, and uh, that is used as a reference, particularly as it relates to um, the overall Energy Star home rating that, that they have available and uh, related to windows, also related, related to appliances. There's a lot of ways in which Energy Star is, is utilized and referenced and used as our measure in the lead for home system. You know, has green building gone through a learning curve or evolutionary process, and were any of the initial theories and concepts, uh, you know, proven wrong? You know, did you kind of regroup and go in a different direction at all? Absolutely. You know, it's another it's another aspect of lead that um, I think you know. Well, well, some people you know look at it as a moving target. You know, to me, that's a good thing. You know, we're not stuck in one place. We're constantly evolving the system, learning from the field realizing that as we get smarter, you know, there's things that you always will do differently, you know, later on after you think about it. And so the system is constantly evolving. There's just an amazing volunteer network of, of experts from around the country that are involved in the, the overall continual uh, review of all the lead systems and uh, making changes to those credits to actually make those changes that is a, is a very uh, complex process right now because LEED has become this national standard. We can't just make a change quickly and uh, you know, put that out in the market. We do have to go through a careful process um, when those changes are actually made. But, uh, but the continual evolution is great. You know, we're constantly thinking about things, constantly getting feedback uh, that's influencing how do we keep improving? How do we keep evolving and, and moving towards best practices, basically? I guess what happens if you, I mean, has there ever been a situation where a building achieved a certification, you know, based on what they thought was best practice, and then you found out it really wasn't best practice? You know, what kind of happens to the certification at that point? Do they lose it? Or no, nobody ever loses their certification, so people definitely worry about that sometimes. But now, once you're certified, you're certified. Um, you know, there may be a point in time in the future where continued certification may be tied to uh, operations and maintenance of the building over time. We're really not there yet, and nobody's lost their certification yet that I'm aware of. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's like anything else, what we know at any one point in time and continue to be best practice, uh, I would hope will always change, and at five years from now, you know, we'll always have improvements that'll make it um, something that we probably would have done differently. Uh, the thing that we don't have enough of is the lessons learned data, though. You know, oftentimes when projects get finished, everybody leaves and, you know, the building goes into operation, and we don't really go back and, and really, you know, look at what would we have done differently, what can we learn from this experience, how could we apply that in the next project. Um, that's something that we're hoping through our organization, through a lot of our advocacy work, uh, and public awareness raising, that we can get more investment put into uh, this continual process of learning and improving. And that really does require, you know, going back, doing some research, documenting, you know, sharing those lessons, and then, then incorporating it into the education process. And I don't see enough of that going on, and that's something we try to influence through our organization. Right, that is um, one of the things that we hear in, within our industry that is the biggest problem right now is that there is no, you know, once it's certified, it's certified. There's no requirement that they become a part of the 
existing buildings. Is that something you're thinking about, or? I I think that that's um, you know I can't really say for now right, right at this point in time because it's a national level decision, but it's it's absolutely come up. Uh, I think it's a very real possibility in the future. Um, I think um, you know you know what we don't want to see happen is you know, some of these buildings that will start becoming five, ten years old. Keep in mind, we only officially launched LEED in 2000. Uh, so, you know, as we hit like that ten-year point and people are touring these buildings and looking at them and, you know, they may go in and see things that aren't very green because something was repainted or something was changed out over time, you know, that's not going to look good. So I think we, we absolutely have to address that in the future. Um, and I and I know there is a conversation going on to figure out how to best do that. I'm just curious also, out of these programs, the LEED for new construction, the LEED MR, which is major renovation, existing buildings, core and shell, commercial interiors, which is, these are all currently up and running, which is the most popular? Well, I think right now, clearly the one that's been up and running the most, the longest period of time, LEED for new construction is the one that's being most heavily used. I would say in another, you know, two to three years of some of these other um, systems really have been in the market longer, you're going you're gonna to really see a big uptake in the market around lead for homes, without a doubt. Uh, it depends on how you measure it. You know, the thing about the commercial building industry, you can do a couple of buildings of massive scale, um, and that may look like a huge section of the market, or you may have a number of smaller buildings. You know, it, it really kind of depends on that a little bit. But, um, you know, I mean, in essence, I think we're looking towards that, that tip point where the market has, you know, where these early leaders that have been really out in the front of this, which really only represent about 5% of the total commercial building market right now, um, you know, they're the leaders. And so I think there's going to be a point at which the rest of the market begins to pick up and start following, and you're going to reach a a critical tip point at which point the rest of the market is just going to really jump on this bandwagon and realize that, you know, you know, green just really needs to become standard practice in the future. Um, and and that's, I think that's that point we're all looking for, hopefully, even as could be as, as little as the next five years. Well, I, I realize that we uh, only were able to get you for about a half an hour here. So before we go, we always like to ask a few things like, for instance, is there anything we missed, for instance, that you would like to add? Oh, wow. That's pretty open-ended, Joe. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm giving you a shot at it. If you want to stay, we'd love to have you, but uh, we understand uh, so your time constraints. Let, let me just say that, you know, for people out there that are really interested in this issue, you know, they really want to know more about, well, how do I get involved? How do I, you know, how do I start becoming educated, more aware, either as a practitioner or a client or a homeowner or you know, somebody on the school board, you know, it affects, you know, everything from schools to churches to homes to office buildings, you name it. It affects everything within our built environment. And, you know, where where do I get started? How do I begin to learn? Um, you know, I just want to say that, you know, we are, they're, they're just, it's almost information overload. If you do a Google search on green building, people just don't even know where to start. I guess that's where our organization comes in. You know, we're really trying to make it easy for people to get started. And so, uh, if anybody, you know, goes to our website at www.gbapgh.org, uh, we do have an events calendar. We do have opportunities for people to come to programs, um, learn a little bit, point you toward what are the right resources to be reading, 
you know, how can you start doing something in your own life and then start educating yourself? Um, you know, I just encourage people to take that first step, you know, which is becoming better informed and, uh, you know, taking, taking a step in the right direction is better than no step at all. And so, you know, I hope that, um, that we can encourage people to do that. Well, thank you for that. That was www.gbapgh.org. That's right. And that acronym stands for Green Building Alliance Pittsburgh. But it's really all of us in Pennsylvania. So um, everyone, everyone out there, we, we hope to be able to get more programs out to, um, to your area and to other areas around western Pennsylvania. This is Pennsylvania after all. <laughs> You'd be pulled over on a regular basis. Just, just drive the speed limit. You'll be okay. <laughs> Cliff, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I just wanted to get one definition cleared up before I let you go. What is sustainable community development? Ah, oh, that's a good one. I teach that one. <laughs> oh, okay. Come to my class. Um, <laughs> Basically, what what I do in a whole semester-long course, actually, is try to make that clear. Um, the traditional practice of community development, community revitalization, you know, really, really looked at um, how do we create healthier, more viable communities. A lot of that has always been focused on the economic side of, um, you know, creating jobs and renewal and things like that. What we try to incorporate is the broader principles of sustainability in terms of, you know, what, what makes a more viable community? You know, what makes it more livable? There's a social network that we have to think about. Um, there's the environmental impact. You know, are we creating healthy places and, you know, natural resources and, and other values, you know, within a community? And then, yes, are we making it economically viable? So it's really getting beyond the traditional economic development formula of what equates to a healthy, viable community and really looking at the social community impacts and networks, and then also the natural resources and a lot of the environmental uh, aspects of a community. So it's pretty comprehensive. It's very broad. It's just trying to think much more broadly, much more comprehensively about how we approach community revitalization, community development practice. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. We really appreciate you joining us here today. I know you have a busy schedule. And uh, maybe we can get you back again down the road. Well, thanks for having me, and hopefully we'll be able to do that. All right. Thanks again, Rebecca, and have a great day. Take care. You too. Next segment, we've got an intro for Mr. Mr. Feldman, IE Connections. You got a kitten up a tree, well, come to me, and I'll see it takes it on the front page. The mayor's mother broke a toe, they've got to know. Dr. Pratt is the man, Big news, another shot to rock. Hello, Glenn, are you there? Next time, I want the theme to the Mary Tyler Moore show. We can do just about anything here. How are you guys? We're great. How about yourself? I'm doing super today. Now, I've got to get you on this, Glenn. You're an association management uh, guru out there. Now, um, hopefully after this last interview, we'll see a few uh, more conventions in the Pittsburgh area with the indoor air quality people. That was a, that was a good interview. I really enjoyed that very much. I had I was I was biting my uh, lips for questions on their residential program. I'm I'm really going to follow up and find out who does the uh, 
the ratings on the homes, who does the evaluations, who, who uh, defines them as acceptable for, for the green rating and all that type of stuff because it's really interesting. Great. I think what we'll do is have a, a, another segment on that in the very near future. I think we can probably get one of uh, Rebecca's uh, education people in. So what's happening? What's in the news coming up in, wow, August already, Glenn? August issue, yes, coming out next week. We've got some great stories. Our front page piece is uh, a follow-up to last month's announcement that uh, the governor of Florida signed the mold licensing bill. So we've got a, a breakdown of the bill. We've dissected it. We've gone through and uh, informed our readers what it really requires of mold remediators and mold assessors, when it's required, and, and what they're going to have to do to become in compliance. And then we've also got um, a look at two other bills that passed this session that people really haven't had their eye on. One's in Minnesota and one's in Wisconsin. One is a study bill that looks like it would lead towards licensing, and the other one is for licensing of pesticide applicators, and we believe it'll be applicable to mold remediators and possibly also water restoration firms. Which, so state, was, which state was that one, Glenn? Uh, Minnesota. Pesticide, Minnesota. Well, you got, you got Cliff's attention real quick. <laughs> well, read the front page story in August, and you'll have all the details. Great. I'll do that. We, um, at our at Press Time article, we're covering something which is right now in the national headlines as well. They've discovered that some of the trailers, well, not some of the trailers, a lot of the trailers sent down to the poor people in New Orleans who were devastated by Hurricane Katrina have just absolutely unbelievable levels of formaldehyde within the indoor environment. And it's not just that uh, there's such high levels, but there's really been a, uh, what amounts to a cover-up of this health hazard. So as the um, Congress gets ready to do some hearings in, into this matter, they're looking to get new trailers into Louisiana. Well, guess what happened to the trailers that had the formaldehyde? They, they, they didn't just go out of use. They moved them onto Indian reservations and put, uh, put Indians into them. So it's, it's a worse situation, just made really bad. And so John Miller, uh, who's our, our new editor, has explored that really well. And you'll be hearing about it on CNN as well as in IE Connections. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You have one more for us? Uh, well, two more for you. One is uh, Great, in, our, in our word on the street real quick. I don't know if anyone caught this one, but uh, Belfour has uh, grown bigger. They've acquired right. the Ducks Network, the uh, Ducks right. Duck Cleaning Franchise Group out of uh, Michigan. So Belfour, which is a $1 billion-plus annual company, has just made themselves a little bigger and expanded the scope of their indoor environmental services work. So keep your eye on them. The last one and the best one is uh, information about the Indoor Air Quality Association's annual meeting and a huge announcement. The keynote speaker for this year's event is Bill Nye, the science guy. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's good, it's good, it's good stuff. Bill Nye is going to come out. He's going to do a 90-minute presentation. He's done phenomenal work on his own home to increase the energy conservation while simultaneously increasing the indoor air quality. He's going to talk about what he's done, and he's also going to talk about cutting-edge technology that's not on the marketplace but should be that could vastly improve people's lives. Hell, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> nice job, Glenn. All right. Well, I'm really glad we were able to hook up today and, and bring you on. Was there anything you wanted to add before we move on to the next segment? Just that I'm really enjoying your show. Keep up the great work, and I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Thank, Thank you very you, much, Glenn. Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. Take care now. Let me check here. I'm not sure. We've got IAQ Guest 3. Is that Dr. Wild by any chance? Hello, IAQ Guest 3. Oh, I guess Is not. It? 
Yes, it is. There he is. Hey, Dieter, how are you? Uh, am I number three? I just uh, <laughs> checked in to listen to you guys. You are number three. Welcome. I uh, tried well, to catch you earlier this morning, but I missed you. You Well, this this is the shock hour. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. I heard the uh, the end of the first presentation and what Len had to say. And uh, there are a couple of very interesting issues. And as you know, I have gray hair, and um, I act, you know I was around. It's it's amazing. I was around. I was a student when the Coal Mine Safety and Health Act was passed. I was a student when the uh, when OSHA got passed. I was you know, on the Toxic Substances Control Act, and I have seen so many things happening, which originally originally. There was a lot of objection to it. You know, Richard Nixon signed the OSHA Act, and I don't know how many people were in Washington uh, from various interest groups, whoever they were, and they said, don't sign that thing and the American economy and all of that. I was around when, in fact, Allegheny County here in Pittsburgh got the first grant from the EPA to study air pollution. I studied it under the tutelage of a couple of professors at the University of Pittsburgh. We, the students, were out with samplers, homemade samplers. You couldn't buy a sampler. You had to make your own. And uh, get the machine that goes. <laughs> and, you know, I was around when um, the first seat belts were mandated. And uh, the, the one, the, the one place that hated seatbelts was Detroit. They said, you know, this is not an American thing. An American has to have his rights, and if he doesn't want seatbelt, we are not going to give it to him. And uh, then they found out that they can make a hell of a lot of money, and then they said, yep, everybody ought to have a seatbelt. <laughs> and so, I, I think with. With our building codes, and I look at my own, own house of how it was insulated when I moved into this place some 25 years ago or so, maybe 27 years ago. Yeah, my 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 energy bills were insignificant. I paid yeah 10 bucks a month for gas and 10 bucks for electricity, air conditioning and heating included. Now it goes up, you know, during January and February in Pittsburgh. My heating bill is $350. And my house certainly wasn't built with that in mind. But at that time, we didn't have any standards. We didn't have any guidelines. Sure, more insulation is better. But I think it's one of, it's one of those learning and uh, processes we have to go through and finally find out, yeah, instead of fighting it, maybe there are a heck of a lot of good ideas behind it. And, of course, if you dissect it and go back, yes, there are many very, very good ideas behind it. And I think they ought to be incorporated. And I think once we know how to do it, they are not overly expensive or prohibitive. And, in fact, they may save us money over it, the long yes, run. absolutely. Yep. Yep, I think uh, I agree. And in fact, uh, it goes back to Cliff's trivia question, actually. I don't know. You didn't hear that. But, I didn't uh, hear it, no. I, I can't give it away. Cliff, did you, do you still have a trivia question, Andy? Maybe you could sure, repeat that real quick. What unlikely green building pioneer 
said this shortly before he died. I put my money on the sun and solar energy. And this was uh, not not exactly within the last 100 years anyway. Uh, I would say well before that, Cliff. Huh? Interesting. Well, it, it is amazing uh, uh, of, of what can be done. And I remember, <laughs> I remember when computers were in the millions of dollars. And you, today you can buy them for a couple of hundred dollars. That's right. I That's remember right. when solar panels, you know, NASA could afford them on a multi-billion dollar project. And you can see them right now. So I, I, I think we have to learn to live with Mother Nature. We can't screw around with Mother Nature. Sooner or later we lose. <laughs> and uh, that's, those are the famous words of an old biology teacher of mine from Germany. He said, if you screw around with Mother Nature, sooner or later you're going to lose. <laughs> I think he was right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, he was. Well, thanks again for joining us, Dieter. It's Pleasure. always great to have you. And uh, stick around. We'll maybe bring you back again at the end. Right. Sure. All right. Thanks. I'll be here. Okay. Zach, we got the sign off. Pound off, Woodjack! Pound off, Greenfoss! Bring it on down, rip it on down! Woodjack, Greenfoss! Okay, this week it's my turn, I guess. I've been trying to avoid it, but uh, the signed off for this week is... It's, it's time for us to sound off about the results of the IAQA's call to action and the IAQ Council's response. Many of our listeners are members of Indoor Air Quality Association, and they're certified through the IAQ Council. IAQ Radio has been following this issue, and I want to update our listeners on what's happening. For those not familiar with the issue, a copy of IAQA's Call to Action can be found on the iaqradio.com website. The bottom line is IAQ Council announced their intention to release page numbers that exam questions were taken from out of the reference documents for each certification they offer, and IAQA objected. On Wednesday of this week, the IAQ Council released new study guides for IAQ Council certification exams. They did not release the page numbers, but did give much more specific information about the sections and pages exam questions come from. The release included a subtle plea from the Council for training providers, any training provider, willing to teach people how to take and pass their exams. The IAQA call to action and member petitions appear to have had some impact on the council's release. How much impact is still to be determined. Following the call to action, the two things IAQA members made abundantly clear were, number one, releasing the page numbers for exam questions is a bad idea. And I think more importantly, number two, IAQA and IAQ Council need to find a way to work out their differences for the good of the members. As a member of the IAQA BOD Board of Directors, I took that message to heart, and I have been silent on the issue until now. Mr. Wiles, the Council's Executive Director and Benevolent Dictator, his words, not mine, wrote an article in the IE Connections explaining why the Council was taking the action of releasing the page numbers. The editorial gave several reasons for releasing this information none of which convinced me that it was a good idea. The thing that bothered me the most about the reasoning explaining why it was released in the editorial was that it was all new information to me, and I'm sure to many of the members of the IAQA's board of directors. The only reason I had been given prior to the editorial for the release of this information 
was that there were not enough new people being certified, and it was affecting the council's financial situation. The bottom line, as unfortunately too often appears to be the case with IAQ Council, is the almighty dollar. The IAQ Council has been a very nice part-time job for Mr. Wow, his associates, many of whom are family members, for many years now. With the downturn in the IEQ economy and the end of the mold is gold rush, it appears they are under some financial strain. Well, join the club. We all are. The proliferation of bogus mold certifications, or as some people call them, one-day wonders, has hurt this entire industry financially and in the eyes of the general public. The unification of IAQA, the IAQ Council, and IESO was supposed to be the first step in helping the indoor environmental quality industry gain the respect it so desperately needs after the mold is gold rush and the corresponding certification debacle. Everybody and anybody with Internet access and a few dollars is now certified in some kind of IEQ discipline. Most are mold inspectors and remediators, completely ignoring other indoor environmental quality issues. The Indoor Air Quality Association gave up its certification program and put it into the hands of what they thought was a group with good intentions and a desire to unify and consolidate this mess. The IAQ Council programs have been approved by the Council of Engineering and Specialty Boards. I believed in CESB accreditation. I felt it would bring some credibility to the industry certification process. It appears I was wrong. CESB does not mean the program was developed on a strong foundation. No educational program or certification program should be boiled down to a few bullet points and a bunch of page numbers. The unfortunate bottom line is that now everybody and anybody will be training people on how to pass the test. I can see laboratories lining up to offer these programs. Do you think they will become training providers because they have a passion for education? Or do you think they will be there to get more clients taking more samples. If the members of this industry think there are a lot of unqualified people out there taking numerous unnecessary samples now, just wait. I had hoped for many years now the industry would develop quality, meaningful certification programs to police our own industry. With these developments, I don't believe that is going to happen. It appears that things are just going to get worse, and those who said we couldn't do it will be correct. It didn't have to be this way. Town of Woodjack, town of Greenport, bring it on round, rip it on down. Woodjack, Greenport. Line it is drawn, the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be passed as the present now will later be passed. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last for the times they are changing. I've been involved with industry trade associations for over 40 years. From my perspective, it's becoming harder and harder to get members for associations and get existing members involved. Members are reluctant to volunteer. The same small group of volunteers seems to do it all. 
Trade associations, their members, and management firms try very, very hard, but often have little to show for it. I must be getting old and crabby. In a few weeks, I'll be traveling to Las Vegas to attend a symposium and trade show. I'm really not looking forward to it. Over my business career, I estimate that I've been to Las Vegas no less than 30 times. This year's trip is particularly irritating. For the return home trip, I have my choice of a middle seat on an overbooked red-eye flight or the option of spending another night in Sin City and losing even more personal time. Trade shows are exciting and will likely always exist. Buyers meet sellers to learn about new products, new relationships are forged, and there's always an opportunity for networking. Although I can complain about trade shows, I don't have any good suggestions for making them better, except to maybe make them a little bit shorter. Consolidation of industry trade associations into connections events is a very good start. But what happens in between annual conventions? It's costly and time-consuming to travel to meetings, seminars, courses, and symposiums. In order to remain afloat, trade associations must add overhead and excess charges onto the exorbitant charges charged by facilities which host the events. In order to ensure maximum attendance, most trade shows or trade associations do not offer sale of videotapes or tape recording of the sessions. So if you didn't attend, you truly missed out. The times they are changing. In my opinion, the current trade association model in the textile cleaning and disaster restoration industry is broken. While the whole world is the market. Most trade associations are focused only on obtaining members in close proximity to their headquarters. Why do only a small minority of those involved with the industry participate? Why do trade associations suffer attrition of members? Perhaps the reasons for this are the distances and difficulties in participating. How can we provide technical information accessible at the member's convenience? Are trade associations really as member-friendly as they could be? Are trade associations really providing the services that the members want? The one big part I see missing is communal opportunities, promoting contact between the members. The success of new mediums such as the Restoration Forum and IAQ Radio proves that the cleaner and restorer of today wants more. The time has come for an internet-based association for the textile cleaning and disaster restoration industry. I'm interested in your opinion on this issue. Call, fax, or email me. This is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Pound of woodjack, pound of greenhorns, sing on round, ripping on down, woodjack, greenhorns. Well, thank you for that, Cliff, and thank you to our listeners once again. We uh, aren't going to have the roundup today. We're going to leave it just the way it is, I believe. This is Joe Hughes and my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, and our cyber jockey, C.J. Zlotnick. And I also want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us today thank our sponsors, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.